Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast with myself, Mike Finch, along with Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, today we are going to be digging into a very interesting subject around uh, nutrition in younger athletes and uh, particularly athletes that are at the top of their game and potentially going towards being professional and elite and all that sort of thing. And we're going to have a special guest who we're going to introduce to you in a short while um, just to talk you through that and who is somebody who works in that space pretty much on a daily basis, giving some very practical advice, not only for um, the athletes themselves, but also for the parents involved in uh, looking after those young stars of the future, potentially. But before we do that, um, as usual, we're going to be taking some of the uh, many comments, first of all, that we've had on our Patreon uh, page, which has been absolutely buzzing at the moment um, in response to our Altitude podcast that we did a while back and uh, also um, lots of other topics that are going around on Patreon. And uh, we're going to tackle one of those in, in just a short bit. But let's first of all kick off with uh, the World Cycling Champs, um, which happened in Glasgow uh, with Ross um, over the last weekend. And that was, a, I mean, I, th- I think if you were a cyclist, you would have been absolutely glued to the screen, particularly the men's race, watching Matteo van der Poel not only fall off his bike with 5Ks to go, but going on to win and a uh, fantastic performance there but it, it it seemed to be an amazing successful week it was mountain biking there was there was even trick cycling there was, was a, downhill everything that you could possibly have wanted you were there it was at the at the world champs yeah super super champs they called it and the next one will be in four years time they're planning to do this on a four-year cycle where they get all the disciplines at one time and i thought it was cool because i don't think i would ordinarily have watched and been aware of some of the crossover athletes had it been separately done, right? So obviously Van Poel winning the road title and then trying for the mountain bike title for a few minutes <laughs> uh, was the big story. But there were lots of crossovers. Lotte Kopecky, for instance, won the women's road race and two medals on the track, one of which was gold, I think. Chloe Dygert won a time trial. So did Fil- Filippo Ghana won gold and silver track versus time trial. Dygert yeah. won gold, gold. So there were there were a handful of those crossover athletes, and the awareness was was amplified by the by the uh, what it was, let's call it super champ concept. So I think it was cool. I don't think every single year works well, but I definitely enjoyed it as a first concept, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again. What did you? What did, just let's just go through some of the interesting things. The men's road race and the women's road race were fascinating because of the course. Mm. Which got a lot of criticism, but I actually like the fact that it was so different. I, I completely get the criticism because it felt like it felt like a crit, and which is which is fine. Yeah, no? I'm, I'm not entirely sure that it should be like that. Because Why? It's, What's it's wrong a, with a crit? 
Well, a crit is a crit. A road race is a road race. They're two different disciplines in, in, in many respects. So, yes, they, it wasn't a crit in terms of the fact that there was Montrose Street, which is obviously the climb, but it was too short for the real climbers. So even Tadej Pogaccio, I mean, that dream top three was amazing, Pogaccio getting third place, but he even he said the climbs weren't long enough for him to make a difference um, against a guy like Van der Poel. Yes, the right person won on the right course, but it wasn't for me. It felt like a course where it required just the power athlete, and it wasn't balanced enough for the a true road racer. Put it that way. I'm not explaining myself very well. I don't think. But I mean, have you seen the course for Zurich next year? No. It's it's going to be a climber. Like they might as well give Pogaccio the medal now and save everyone the trouble. Mm-hmm. Unless Vinegar decides to do it after the tour and gets himself in the same shape he was in the tour, then maybe. Mm. But it's got these climbs like six k's or something at like quite a high percentage in and around Zurich around that lake, and then there's one that they do on the last three laps, which is which is long enough and steep enough that I can't see any of the classics guys being even remotely competitive. So he'll have an opportunity the same way Valverde had True. his in Innsbruck. So I can see that you'd want to run a cycle that rewards different elements, different aspects. Like Evenepoel would have done much better on a different course than even sixth, I think. Mm. That, that course was even worse for him than at least pagatch has got power explosive power that he maybe lacks vinegar was no chance on that glasgow course mm. but that to me is okay in the, in the end i felt like if you made a list of the top four cyclists in the world in one day races you would have seen those top four guys contesting that title and so in Fair that enough. respect it achieved what you'd want to see but it, i agree it was when you looked at the, what was it, 49 or 50 corners per lap yeah. times 10 laps, 500 turns, yeah. that's like, okay, the cyclocross guys are going to win this because that's what they do. That's their, that's their physiology. It's their jam is hard efforts for 35, 40 seconds, recover on descent. Hard efforts, recover with bike handling in between. So, yeah, in the end, mm-hmm. Kopecky, Fanapool. For sure, and in it's, a way, it was their it was their rainbow year. And in a way, it took away from potentially the team aspect of it because without corners where you've got longer sections where you can work together as a team, you have more chance of getting that team aspect. So, uh, I mean, the, certainly, you know, the, the Dutch did a good job and the Italians did a good job, but the, you know, essentially, and Danish, it, and, I think, yeah, the men's race extent, and, the, yeah. and the yeah. But yeah. I, I, I did, I did take your point. I, I mean, it was it, hell of exciting to watch. I really oh, enjoyed it. Tremendous. The, the, the women's race. Tremendous. Maybe even more because the men's race, all the action came. It was incredible, like 100 plus kilometers from the line. They were attacking as though it yeah. was the last lap. It was and so you look at this, you're like, this is. And, and the one, if I was to be critical of the course, is if you didn't get into the top 20, you were not competitive in that race on that lap. Because, and, and for listeners, the problem is that there's a. It's like when you're in traffic and you get to a traffic light or someone in front of you, seven cars ahead, breaks, like. 10 seconds later, you're, you're standing still. And then to catch that up on a bike means that every corner, if you aren't at the front maintaining speed, you're going from 0 watts to 700 watts and 0 watts to 700 watts. Great. The guys in front are going from 300 to 400, 300 to 400. Yeah. And the physiological cost of the extremes is so much higher than a consistent hard effort. Yeah. And that's where the skill of positioning maybe was disproportionate in that race. But so, so so that bit I can understand. But the the excitement value of seeing guys attack. There were four or five short climbs per lap, four or five opportunities to go in the women's race. That was happening right to the finish line. In the men's race, 
it felt almost like they were physiologically forced to call a truce with about 60k to go because yeah. no one had any punch left mm. and then one final move for Funapool did it and so I, I, th- I thought they were amazing races and then on the mountain bike like the controversy around the start grid yeah they need to fix that that's yeah. that's sure absurd. Was not pretty happy about that yeah. none of them were and you can understand because you can't you can't make the rule up two days before. Yeah, or decide no problem to, with the rule. It was the fact that it changed. Correct, yeah. and and so that for the listeners, there's a rule that allows World Cup races to accommodate world top ten guys on row five of the grid, but it doesn't exist for world champs. And then all of a sudden it did. Mm. <laughs> and so yeah, for a, you you I think they should have a rule like that for world champs, right? Would you agree? Yeah. Come, I, I, there's no doubt that it should happen. Imagine, but not. Imagine That's, you stick Pidcock in front of Pool. Okay, Pidcock wouldn't have been far back because he already had won a race this yeah, year. He would have been up. way at the back. Imagine you did that. <laughs> okay, then Van Pool sort of crashed, so he's moot now. But and Van Pool ends up twelfth in the race. You haven't. You, you've denied spectators the opportunity to see something that's massive for the benefit of the sport. It's stupid. Mm. It's actually self sabotage. Mm. So they need a rule, but they just have to figure it out. Not two days before a race. It's yeah. it's daft. Yeah, and it was just quite, I mean, it's a strange sort of feeling not seeing Schurter win. But Nina Schurter, I mean, Pitcock was you know, right. pretty much so on the class of his own. So and for us as South Africans, we were we actually watched the race. And fortunately, we had some television coverage that kind of overlapped with the Under-23 World Championships, which was, a, which was another great race. But they only mm. caught us like an hour into the start, into the men's XCO. And uh, our South African um, hope, Alan Hatherley, was sitting top three. A long and they time. Were, and for a long time with Schurter and Pitcock. And I thought, well, there's definitely a medal here. But the oh, blew, Sam eh? Gaze yeah. was absolutely yeah. phenomenal. The way that he paced that yeah. um, was amazing because you think at that level, a, a guy like Thomas Pitcock and Schurtek literally firing off against each other the whole time. There's no way guys are going to come from behind. But in the end, they killed each other and Gaze was the well, end. I think end that's, of, exactly, yeah. that's exactly it. Gaze and I was think, clever enough to come from behind and get the silver. And I think Hathaly's presence in the front three was actually quite instructive as a barometer for what was happening at the front of that mm-hmm. race because he went backwards at a rate. Shirts had dropped off quite a lot. Even yeah. Pidcock was being caught quite quickly by guys. Yeah, another couple so the, of laps. So the, the Mount Mike race was quite similar to the men's road race where the, the pace early on is just so hard that it's a survival fest by the but time. But again, you, you have to give yourself a chance. If Hatherley hadn't gone with that break of Pidcock and Schurter, Do you think so? his critics would have said, well, you didn't give yourself a chance. Yeah, At I'll, least he gave himself a chance. I wonder if, he, if he'd gone with a second group that had Kuretsky and guys in it. Because there was a point where Schurter took the B line quite cleverly to drop behind. I don't know if that it was on the coverage. I was watching it on GC. CN and yeah, Schurter was in the front and he was gesturing to Pidcock and Hathaly come past let's go and none of them would and he very cleverly took the B line next thing he's at the back and then Hathaly was on the front and they're clearly going so hard and I wonder if Hathaly had measured his efforts not quite to Gay's levels but to like Koretsky whether he would have been able to go high I suppose you'll never know but and then as for Van der Poel, I don't know I feel like I wonder if I wonder if there's a there's an issue there technically or if it's concentration or what because <laughs> crashing on right turns twice in two races seems seems like maybe a pattern's emerging plus there was the Olympic mountain bike race in 2021 and while I hope that he he tries again in Paris I think there's some things he has to assess before he does I would argue that it's just he just fatigued 
Maybe. I mean, yes, you would say that at that level he's probably recovered sufficiently, but the fatigue, the mental fatigue of having performed at the road race and just, what, four, mm. five days later? Yeah. Riving himself up again to do a highly technical well, race. Mentally, that must be hard to do. A, from a physiological point of view, you saw that with the men's road race into the men's time trial, Pogaccia, nowhere. Mm, nowhere. Uh, Stefan Kung, I think, was 11th. And I mean, mm. this is a guy who's not normally going to be beaten by and 10 other people. And who actually almost tapped up the end of the road race dominant, dominating to, it, to, yeah. to win that so that could well be a, an issue there yeah um yeah so so and then the only other physiological observation i'd make and it's an interesting thing is the men's time trial lasted 50 odd minutes gano was second by a few seconds mm. having won a 4k pursuit a few days before similarly with chloe Daggett, a four minute effort and then a 40 something odd effort and cycling is interesting like that because you wouldn't expect at the upcoming World Athletics Champs to see the 1,500-meter athlete have the physiology to compete in the World Champs Half Marathon Yes, absolutely. At, in the same week. It, it happens where, like, Sifan Hassan is a great 1,500 runner and wins a London Marathon. But they, at least those are separate events. Cycling is just physiologically, I think, quite interesting in that you mm. you can actually perform at quite a wide spectrum of durations and thus intensities. And it's, it's because of that power duration curve and the physiology is similar enough that they're more transferable than in running. So anyway, I thought I thought it interesting that you get crossover in cycling, but not in in running events. Yeah. Mm. Talking about world championships and athletics, uh, for those of you who are interested, I'm off to Budapest in a couple of days' time to watch those world championships. So next week uh, we should be bringing you quite a lot of coverage, um, maybe every day, um, but at least every second day bringing you updates on what's happening there. And hopefully I'll get a couple of uh, really good interviews with some of the athletes and potentially some coaches and some people of interest in Budapest. So um, we'll hopefully bring you some more details Mm. on that. That will probably happen on our Instagram account, um, but we'll let you know via our social media media how that happens and the actual um, little interviews that we do will probably go onto our Patreon page as well so keep an eye on our social media I am very jealous just out of uh, well I know because we we were supposed to have gone to the world champs a couple of years ago in uh, Eugene Oregon which we never managed to get together and then it was literally lastminute.com that uh, we um, that we managed to get uh, this trip uh, to Budapest. So yeah, I'll be I'll be eating some goulash and taking some river trips on the Danube, and then uh, spending some time at the stadium. Anyway, let's uh, focus again back onto the cycling thing. And another big story that's hit the, uh, the the wires in the last couple of days is, of course, Richard Freeman, the former British cycling coach, and uh, also with uh, Team Sky through the, the the heyday of Team Sky, banned for four years. Yeah. After claiming that the testosterone that was in his possession was for a person on the team that was suffering from erectile dysfunction. <laughs> Which it's, a li- it's an unlikely story. Shane Sutton was the person that he said it was being used for, but um, he's denied that he has any. Yeah, so what, what, what we have is a murder without bodies. We have, yes. a, we have a doper without dopees or doped athletes, right? So, And you, you look at this and you say, okay, at the time we knew something was up. There was a lot. Remember, there's all that speculation swirling around Sky, and the and the use of medicines was the main thing. You had it with Wiggins, you had it with Froome, the salbutamol, the cortisone, the Jiffy bag, all that sort of stuff. So you knew all this stuff was happening. Now you have a a verdict that's basically reached of guilty because otherwise you wouldn't have a four year ban. But you have no no um, sporting consequence to that. It's it's crazy. And we've said a little bit about the Freeman thing. I lost track a little bit of the Freeman trial because. 
it made so many false starts and it was scheduled and then delayed and scheduled and delayed and then a laptop was lost and the record keeping wasn't good enough so it's like chase it's like trying to trying to, trying to tackle a shadow and in the end we have a guilty doctor but no guilty athletes how, how do you reconcile those things it's just insane and it's just another example where you know we've had so many doping stories in the last few weeks and you mentioned patron buzzing every day a couple of emails and messages come in did you see this athlete was caught this athlete was caught we've had boxers we've had runners we never get cyclists <laughs> so cycling is clean right well <laughs> no because here's an example none of those guys were caught either but you know the doctor was ordering drugs for staff i mean yeah. come on what was it's it called testro gel was testo gel i think yeah. was the name yeah. yeah and then and then the jiffy bag's never really been resolved the the cortisone treatments for wiggins on that bus remember this all that stuff that just this is where doping gets so frustrating because you never it feels like the circle's never closed mm. and, and of course it taints that sky dominance um, that happened at the time because he was so intrinsically involved in that team whether the team themselves knew what was happening we will never know but it was yeah and, you know, and British cycling remember that delivery was made to that Manchester I think it was Manchester the velodrome where they yeah. were based the track program which still let's be honest in Glasgow is still producing gold medals galore they were yeah. top of the medal table by a lot yeah um and at the time in the late mid mid to late 2000s and into the 2010s that was the dominant cycling nation and now now you look back you say okay well there was a lot of talk and speculation and doubt at the time and here we are with a guilty verdict but no no dopers a doped a doper doping doctor but no doped athletes it's just it's just yeah, it's 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 messy it's and lousy, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's difficult to reconcile what we know about those performances. Yeah, back and then. I saw it, yeah. I saw a tweet actually yesterday that I retweeted from David Hunter, who's the cycling mold. There's great previews, incidentally, mm. of cycling events, and he he basically listed all the things that we'd been sold at the time: comfortable pillows, better sleep, and pineapple juice, all the, all the stuff that was attributed to marginal gains. And now, well. <laughs> here's a here's a marginal gain for Tish you. Tish gel, yes. But there was a the, yeah. The marginal gain was not not getting athletes' names exposed. That was what mm. that's where you gained. Doctor took the fall, not the athlete. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then another bit of controversy, which has uh, hit the headlines, and it was to be built up towards the Rugby World Cup. Owen Farrell, the uh, UK, the English player, um, very nasty tackle. Yeah. Um, that uh, was initially like, just take us through what happened. He first of all got the red uh, yellow card on the field. The the what's it called? The bunker. Yeah. Which is so the offsite? No, onsite extra referee kind of thing then made it a red card yes. after reviewing yeah it's now been rescinded as a red card and he can play as opposed to being banned for four games yeah i have a mini game so we don't that. know what the ban would have been because they didn't ever reach the point of having to decide on that ban because yeah. they effectively said it didn't meet the red card threshold which which undermines and directly disagrees with what that official decided during the match yeah so for listeners in the north who don't maybe watch Super Rugby, the bunker concept actually started beginning of this year in that Super Rugby tournament. And we introduced that there with their collaboration in, in Australia and New Zealand, specifically because there was a perception that the on-field referee was being asked to make quite complex decisions about high tackles in a short space of time without sufficient opportunity to see video angles while under pressure on the field. It's a tricky thing to do. Like... You know, you see the ref staring up at the big screen and he's having to go through a process 
did I see head contact, yes or no? Is there foul play, yes or no? What was the degree of danger, high, medium, low? Is there any mitigation? And that's what kind of determined. So there's this head contact process that determines that. And it was then proposed and, and agreed that if you could outsource that or, or, or hand it off to someone who had more time, who could slow it down, who could look at more angles in the less pressurized cauldron of the actual field, you would be more likely to arrive at a correct decision for the benefit of the player and the game and the welfare of all players. And so and this just, was, the, just the referee on the field say, I'd like that reviewed, or is it done independently so, of the game itself? No, so what, what then, the way it was implemented is that the on-field referee now has to assess a tackle only as to whether it reaches the threshold for a card. No longer has to decide on the color of that card. That's that part is handed off to someone else. So all the on-field ref is doing is saying, I've seen head contact as a result of foul play. It's cardable. He could, he could decide it's not cardable. He could decide it's only a penalty, in which case he just carries on, gives the penalty and play on. Well, not play on, but we play from the penalty on. But if he decides that he thinks that there should have been a card, then he gives a yellow card. Now, normally that would cause the player to go off for 10 minutes. And there's your window to do the more detailed review. So now that at that point, the yellow card is given. It's effectively a handoff to the off-field official who now is dedicated to reviewing that. Automatically. Instance. Yes, exactly. So every single yellow card for head contact is now going to be reviewed. And in this particular game against Wales, the off-field process was run. It's then communicated to the referee that that card you've just given actually met the threshold for red. And then it becomes upgraded effectively to red. It's now permanent card. Or... And this was happening often in Super Rugby. The off-field referee says, right, I've looked at this. I believe that it met the threshold for a yellow card, not red. And the guy comes on after 10 minutes just like he always did. Does that make sense? So in effect, you've just outsourced the last part of that process, the detailed bits, degree of danger and mitigation. So this was the first instance where um, it had happened in an international match. It's uh, for many people who only watch the Northern Hemisphere rugby. It's the first time they'd seen it work. And I think that's part of the reason. The other part is that it's Owen Farrell, who we in South Africa and many other countries would know there's a history of um, talk about tackle technique and head contact because there have been a few instances in the past. So it's a very high profile case. It was then, as we said, the, the, the on-field, the in, let's not call it on-field, the in-match decision was red card. And yesterday it was announced that on the, cite, the citing hearing, they had decided it shouldn't have been a red card, only yellow, and as a result cleared him. Now, the, the, I want to make the point that the, the citing commissions, those judiciaries that run on a Monday or Tuesday after a match weekend, they are independent of World Rugby. The consequence of that is that World Rugby can appeal the decision. And so there's a possibility that that may happen. Because if you go on social media and you follow anything related to rugby, I don't think I've ever seen Twitter explode the way oh, that man, The reaction is unbelievable. unbelievable. Yeah. I woke up this morning at 4.30 with anxiety at all the stuff that was happening. I almost joined you blokes on your early morning bike ride. I'm never awake that time of day. So, so like, you can appreciate that, that there's a lot going on at the moment and it might well be appealed. If that happens... I might well be involved because I was involved in the creation of those high tackle frameworks and the head contact process from the research and the risk factor point of view. So it's been quite frustrating because I'm I'm almost obliged not to comment on the specifics yeah, of the yeah. case at this point. By the time listeners hear this, when this podcast goes out, we'll know whether that appeal has in fact been lodged or and maybe even the outcome. I don't know how, how it works from here. I'm not in that side of the, the, the process. Mm. But that's why I haven't 
weighed in <laughs> yeah. on the specifics of the of the tackle and how I would run the process. But what I will say is that whenever you have an in-match decision that is then disagreed with, and it could go both ways, sometimes in-match, we saw this in the South Africa-Argentina game, in-match the referee said play on, the player was cited and then sanctioned. So they're effectively saying that you didn't sanction in the game, you should have, it's now a red card after the fact. Here you've got the opposite, it's mm-hmm. a red card before and then changed to yellow after the fact. Though I would call those like coherence challenges because you, you have a incohesive, you, you have an internal disagreement. It's, there's there's no congruency from the in-match to the post-match, you know what I mean? And that mm. that you can't deny that that undermines the, the process because what you're trying to do with sanction is create a message to change behavior. And if that message isn't consistent, then the behavior change will be compromised. So whatever, wherever you stand on what this particular decision should have been or any other one, the ideal would be that the post-match sighting is in agreement with the in-match decision as often as possible. Mm. And when it's not, then then we have to figure out, well, how do we calibrate these two processes so that we get that as often? Because no one no one should ever expect there to be perfect agreement. These are subjective calls fundamentally. High danger, low danger. Is there mitigation? Is there not? Mm. Everyone should by now know that no, you're never going to get 10 people, even five people to agree 100% of the time. But you need agreement as often as possible in as with as many people as possible. And so the reaction, I think, is quite understandable. The fact that it's a high-profile player, the timing of which is now just before the Rugby World Cup, it has implications for that tournament. It's the first time the bunkers used. And also there's a bigger picture where the sport is actively trying to lower the height of the tackle. You know, we've, we've man- well, not mandated, we've lowered the height in the community game around the world. I spent most of the last week in meetings with unions. And the moment something like this happens where you get a decision on the field, everyone says, yeah, cool, we get that. And then it gets reversed. So oh, now we don't get that. Yeah, yet, not yet, being consistent. Yeah, and so there's confusion. There's, it looks like double standards. And so so I, I completely understand why that happens. And as to where this specific case goes, let's see. But quite clearly, if you want to change the behavior, you need a consistent message. And that, that is challenging. I mean, there's no doubt it's challenging. And there's no perfect solution to it. But yeah, it, it's... I get it, but and but what I don't what I don't get, and, and what I've seen a lot of is like this is now clearly the death knell of player welfare. People are saying this is the moment. August the fifteenth, twenty twenty three, is um, the day that World Rugby conceded that it doesn't care about players' head injuries and player welfare and so on. And that's not that's definitely not the case. Um, I understand it, but I don't think that it's a fair <laughs> fair conclusion to reach on the basis of a an independent sighting panel making a decision that is in disagreement with an on-field referee. So we'll see where it goes. It's a, yeah, but it, I'll be honest, it's frustrating when it happens like this all the yeah. time, not just now. Well, we'll put the link up to some of the video material that's out there. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on uh, rugby rules as Ross is, and as you heard, you can't comment at the moment because you might be involved in the process, but uh, have a look at it. Listen, what you think? Um, certainly from the evidence that I've seen it, <laughs> it looks like a, reasonably penalizable offense when it's, so. look when it's finished and the whole process is run its course and it's closed then i'll gladly talk through how i would have assessed it but like yeah. I, I just don't want to go through that right now yeah 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 and yeah. um, just a vast little point we were just talking about uh, the recovery of cyclists um and uh, the ability to be able to be on the track and then do the, the road race a couple of days later and i was actually just thinking about this as we finished the conversation on that and uh, as i mentioned i'm off to the world athletics championships in a couple of days time and one of the 
things to watch out for is that the Dutchman Sif and Hassan is actually going for three events, the 1500, the 5000 and the 10,000, which would be absolutely the Was most she- unbelievable <laughs> achievement if she can do it. But the irony is the 10,000 probably be her easiest event. Yeah. Yeah. So in theory, she should be able to do it because that's the last event that she needs to do. So yeah, she, won't win, she won't win the 1500 against Kipiagon. Yeah, and I'd be, well, she's certainly going to try. She'll try, and I'll be surprised if she can beat Kibiagon at five. Like, yeah. mem- remember that Hassan did that in in Tokyo, and she won two out of the three. The one she didn't win was the 1500, because I think it was there that Kibiagon beat her. But she won the f- five and the ten. And so I agree with you. I think the ten is the one she's the most likely to win. And so if she gets to that race, having won the first two, then, yeah, I would predict a treble. But I, I just, Kipiagon seems to me to be at another level. And Hassan, not quite at the level of the Olympics, but maybe she finds a way to, to get there. Who knows? It'll be that. That's one of, I think, the many storylines to look at in this. So that, that would be a range from four minutes to 30 minutes, yeah. which is which is. And don't forget, she's also won London Marathon. Yeah, it's not it's not for nothing. No one really ever does that. It's it's it's, uh, yeah, it's impressive if you can do it, and it's yeah. And as promised, uh, we have a lot of uh, conversations and discussions happening on our Patreon page. If you want to support us and be part of our Patreon community, you can go to patreon.com and look for the Science of Sport podcast. And I can tell you there is all sorts of discussions happening on there pretty much every single day that uh, Ross keeps an eye on. Also, he often sends out a newsletter just to our Patreon supporters as well. Plus, there is opportunities for uh, some unique content uh, from us as well on that Patreon page. But we had a comment from Neil Lafferty who responded to our conversation and our, uh, our interview, well, our discussion on altitude training. Mm. And he talked specifically about the, these sort of molecules, What I don't know how to describe them, where they essentially build your red blood cells. Yeah. Uh, and he was talking a little bit about how he thinks that is a realistic yeah, so option. My, so <laughs> my, my, fa- my favorite little tidbit from the altitude one is when you go to altitude, the way that it actually works is that you have this – transcription factor that's in every cell in your body and it's called hif1 hypoxia inducible factor one and that that little guy normally only lasts for five minutes in your body before it's broken down so it's never really around long enough at a time to do anything but the moment you go to altitude it's amazingly and i thought this was i thought this was the coolest part of that podcast is it lasts for 30 minutes instead of five and that 30 minutes is long enough that it now starts to switch on genes and one of those genes is the gene that eventually downstream after a few steps, is going to cause EPO levels to go up, which is going to cause red blood cells to go up. Makes sense, yeah? Yeah. So that's how it works. That's literally how altitude works, is it switches on transcription of genes because this factor starts to last longer. And Is, I, it, is it called a factor? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's transcription it? factors, and this one's right. called HIF, hypoxia-inducible factor. What, what is it? When you say a factor, just describe what that is. Is it a, is it a molecule? Is it an yeah. enzyme? It's a, it's a molecule. It's a molecule, and, and, okay. and what it does is it binds to your genome. So now you're talking at the level of DNA, and it switches on the transcription of, dre- of genes. So wow. there are genes that code for the – it's almost like an instruction manual that prescribes how certain proteins are made. And this thing basically then triggers that process. It's really fascinating. It's testing my molecular knowledge from 20 years ago. And when it say you triggers that, what what causes it to do that? Do we know? (laughs) Am I pushing your molecular knowledge? Yeah, a lot. So so there's two things I don't know. One is how altitude causes it to last for 30 minutes instead of five. I find Mm. that fascinating. Like, how is that factor sensitive to the pressure of oxygen? Amazing. And the second thing is once it's there for long enough, 
it's obviously binding and then causing the transcription of RNAs from DNA, which then RNAs code for the protein. So there's this messenger sequence where DNA becomes RNA becomes protein. And that's ends up with the formation eventually of red blood cells, plus a whole bunch of other enzymes that we mentioned in the podcast. So that's kind of revision. And what Neil messaged was, because then I, I, I floated, not tongue in cheek, but very briefly, the idea that if you want to dope, one of the most effective ways to dope would be to turn on the very same factors that you get from training. Now, HIF is one of them, but there's hundreds of others. Because when I go for a long run, and I become fitter as a consequence, that fitness gain is driven by factors that cause genetic expression to happen. Makes sense, right? Yeah. All the enzymes, the mitochondrial growth, the capillary growth, everything about muscle cell regeneration, strength of the muscles, that, that stuff is all driven fundamentally at a molecular level by these factors. And so if there are drugs that can cause these factors to stick around for longer and do their work, that's a massive doping benefit which might be undetectable. And so I sort of floated the idea that we're almost certainly in a frontier of molecular doping. You could call it gene doping because it actually is that, but it's a molecular doping me mechanism. Well, that's what Neil Lafferty is actually and saying. And that's He's, what he says. He said, yeah. and I'm, I wouldn't take this bet if I were you, he says, I would be willing to bet all of Mike's money. <laughs> the drugs Not like... Much of that. Yeah, I wouldn't take this bet, whatever that amount is. Or drugs like Roxadustat, and we'll get onto this in a moment, that's the name of a drug, are at the forefront of current doping practices. Now, Roxadustat, if you've been following the news, is the drug that the tennis player Simona Halep was tested positive for. And it's a drug that does exactly the same thing as altitude. It causes HIF to last longer and therefore drive the altitude benefits, but not going to altitude, but rather by using the drug. And so, really interesting, right? So, oh. there are already examples of these drugs, and I think there'll be many others. <laughs> and Neil's made the point, and he says, uh, Roxadustrat is a hydroxylase inhibitor, meaning it works by reducing the breakdown of HIF with resultant increased stimulation of hemoglobin production and the other benefits of the physiological process that we discussed in the podcast. That's a message from Neil. Mm, even I it's understand It's an old that. drug with a short half-life, which is why you were probably not detected very easily in athletes. Simona Halep was probably unlucky. If you misuse it or use too much, you'd potentially cause blood changes that would trigger the biological passport, right? You get increases in red blood cell and hemoglobin that might tri trip up the passport, which is what happened with Halep because she, she failed the test for the drug and the biological passport flagged her. Mm -hmm. She's claiming contamination, incidentally, and both those things could be contamination. She obviously has to prove that. But anyway, then there was a discussion. There was a couple of other people that brought it up as well in patrons. So if you want to see that discussion and, and the, some of the theories that people have put out there, sign up to patron and you go and have a look at it. But I thought it was a, it, I, I didn't make the link in my head between this HIF and Roxadustat. But when he said it, I said, okay, actually, here's an example of molecular doping. And while we were doing that podcast, I remember you saying that there was potential for this particular correct. enzyme to be abused and where it was used. So, exactly. You know, and your, your it's one, were correct it's one of many factors that I think, and in the world of medicine, I think we're moving to a place like, for instance, cancer. Cancers have been attributed to rampant growth as a consequence of these factors going haywire. Therefore, treatments for those are going to switch them off and switch some other ones on. And when you have medical treatments, you have potential for doping, like EPO for kidney, but also for performance. So this is, this is probably where if I was in anti-doping, I'd be, if I wanted to be at the forefront, I'd be trying to get ahead of this wave, 
which I think is already broken on the shore, but I'd still be interested in. So yeah, really fascinating. As you said, like honestly, one of the posts we did on Patreon has now had a hundred comments. So not all of them are me. So you'll be relieved to know. But if you wanna, <laughs> if you wanna plug into that community and read about stuff like this from people like Neil Garrett's been prolific, Ian's been prolific, Joshua Stacy, so cool to get it all. It's sometimes overwhelming. But it's a cool message board community now, so, so hop on if you're interested. And it's better than, what is it called now, X, Twitter. Oh, it's so much, so much better than X. <laughs> I think the faster, the faster Elon Musk runs X into oblivion, the better for the world, for humanity's sake, in my opinion. But there you go. Thanks, Neil, for that, and all the rest of you for your wonderful engagement on, on Patreon. <laughs> right, so let's move on to our subjects of the day. Right, we're going to be introducing uh, Sarah Chantler very shortly, who is somebody that has uh, really has a real passion for uh, dietetics. I um, always struggle sometimes to say that word, but she really does have a passion for it. And somebody that started off working in the public health space, as you'll hear from her during the interview, and then moving on to a very specific part of the dietetics space, and that is around adolescent behaviors and change and education. Uh, Ross, for us, she's a, she's a local South African now living overseas, um, but she's gained this an amazing, when you listen to her talking, there is an amazing passion for what she wants to do in that space, backed up by a lot of science and expertise. Yeah, plus the ability to communicate it in, in the language that the recipient needs to hear it. Like yeah. I think you could you could become an expert and never quite pitch it at the level of the end user. In her case, it's often a young adolescent athlete, a parent or coach. And she's she's really learned that skill very well. So she came out here, she was on she, she's actually just graduated with her she's received her PhD a few weeks back and now yeah. she's in South Africa again from Leeds just on holiday. And I said, I have to use this opportunity and have her speak to the coaches at that running academy that I work with a little bit. And not for the first time, she did that. And I said, Well, okay, I have to do a podcast on this. So this is a podcast aimed at parents at coaches of young athletes and at young athletes themselves. And hopefully what you get from it is a series of practical things that you can try mm. and do to manage what I think is often a neglected element of a young athlete's development and sports performance. And that's how, not necessarily how you feed yourself, but how you relate to food and the decisions you make regarding nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. Just to give you some background on her, she started off uh, as a dietitian here in Cape Town, moved on to become a PhD candidate and performance nutritionist at Leeds Carnegie Rugby, Univ uh, Rugby Club. And then as uh, Ross has just suggested, she's now a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University and has been there for four years, um, focusing on various aspects. But obviously consults to netball and as you've heard on rugby side and uh, a lot of expertise around the running spaces with her. So here is Sarah, Dr. Sarah Chantley. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
So welcome, Sarah Chandler, to the Science of Sport podcast. Very nice to have uh, you in the studio with us today because normally we have our guests all over the world kind of in different places and it's nice to have somebody kind of live. I know Ross likes it live. He doesn't like to do anything via, via the webs if he can help it. Now, today we're going to be talking about something, as we've said in the intro, a lot around nutrition development in younger athletes. And I want to kick off the discussion today by asking you, what are... What is the issue? Like when I think about this, I go, okay, right, kids need to eat for sure. But, and developing athletes need to eat. But surely it doesn't matter what they eat because they are developing, they can eat as much as they'd like and therefore it's not an issue. What are the issues? It's probably uh, sometimes a reasonable question because sometimes I don't think we always know what all the issues are. But if I think about my background in terms of, of working with adolescents and specifically in the nutrition space, is that we've got a lot of changes in terms of what the expectations are once you're an adult. So whether that's changes in professionalism, the time that you need to be ready to be able to get a contract for something. So all of that filters downwards from that perspective, which means that we're putting a lot more pressure on the development part of an adolescent athlete, which means that if you want to optimize development and physical growth in whichever way we want to look at it, is that you have to eat to go with that. But we have a huge constraint to the fact that adolescents don't have adult brains yet. Mm. So they also have huge limitations or should I say challenges around the idea of how we then apply adult based concepts into adolescent brains. And then we can find problems and, and when, also challenges. Sorry, I just have to be clear that when you say brains, we're talking <laughs> about how they think emotionally yes. <laughs> and how they think. We're not, we're not literally talking about feeding the brain and and saying like that there's a calorie requirement because on this podcast we often talk about the brain as a physiological construct yeah. but you're talking about it as an emotional psychological one there is both there is definitely still physiological development of the brain in terms of adolescence and feeding that but yeah. i think that again i'm mostly focused on the psychological psychosocial side of things which of course sometimes as a dietitian i have to be a bit uh, restrained around the fact that that's not necessarily my scope of practice. I was going to say that's a bit, I'm not sure yes, we, how no, that no. relates. So, mm. so in terms of obviously acknowledging the physiological side, that would fall sort of under the nutrition and the physiological feeding of that. But being able to then look at a framework where an adolescent has a specific way of viewing things or a specific way of developing, I have to take that into account in how I'm going to then approach feeding that athlete. Mm. And I think that that's really different from an adult and it just needs to be um, you can cause a lot of damage, I think, if we don't consider the idea that they are not yet psychologically adults either. I mean, like, as an aside, though, we've spoken on this podcast that sort of our first foray into nutrition was with Kim Hoffman, remember? And she was a mm. psychologist who now works, and her big thing was relationship with food. Yes. And, and this is a sort of a deviation. I don't think this is what we want to explore today. But I'm surprised at how little psychology support and training dietitians would receive because I can't think how you would work with a vulnerable, ambitious and susceptible 15 year old girl and change habits without understanding psychology. It's mm. a, because because we're not calculators. It's not a question of eat this, then that. Oh, no, we're definitely not robots. So it, how it's, does it's probably it, the does biggest it, failing of like so classic dietetic that, training. Yes, 100%. Yeah, like yeah. I'm not, if you'd put me 10 years ago when I started working in sport, one of the biggest things I had to learn was the messiness of people and how people function, which again then means that most of my sort of understanding of adolescent brains is an acquired experience rather than the idea that yeah. I've gone and studied psychology. It's, but it's, it's like there's that book. Remember there was that book that was written by Mark McCormack. He was a sports agent, but he had a Harvard MBA and he wrote a book called What They Teach You at Harvard Business School. 
and then someone writes a counter book to say what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School. <laughs> and it sounds like in, a, in the dietitian world, they teach you a bunch of stuff and then when you start working, they realize what they didn't teach you yes. and then you learn it on the job. 100%. Yeah. This might be a step back, but I just wanted to kind of just with the context of what you just said there, how did you get into this and what was your interest? In other mm. words, you, you got into the space. Where, where was the fascination? Um, well, so as most dietitians in, who qualify in South Africa, we do a year of community service and that year is in, in public health. And so I did my first year in public health in rural KwaZulu-Natal which wasn't necessarily very dietetic related. It was also, again, going back into the context of South African public health. But after that, then I came, um, I traipsed around for a bit and came back to public health and realized that my levels of patience weren't very good. And when I say patients, like everything in public health, unfortunately, just takes quite a long period of time. Yeah. And my other... Especially joy- in South Africa. Yes. And yeah. so I have two... I have two changes. Yeah. All, and yeah. I have two joys. The one is public health, which I fundamentally believe is critical, but the other is sport. And it's always been an interest. So eventually I just came to the idea that I would try that first. So I was second and then go back to public health later when I'm old. Um, so went to back to UCT to do my master's in exercise science and then can sort of continue down that path and started working then predominantly in sport and sports nutrition. And young athletes? What what, what um, interests you about younger athletes particularly? I think I realized somewhere that we were dealing with, in the practice that I was working in, we were dealing with obviously adults and adolescents and then being involved with the South African rugby youth teams and squads as well. It's just that the idea of how we were framing what we were trying to get them to achieve or do on behalf of nutrition to support their training volumes, etc. Just that... We were approaching it not necessarily with the nuance of understanding completely that adolescents don't function, as I said, don't really function like adults. But also, even if it's things like autonomy around food decisions, so how who does the grocery shopping? Um, how much budget have you got in your household? Uh, do you can you even do you even know what's in the grocery store because maybe you have or haven't done grocery shopping with your parents or parent or whoever's the caregiver? So any of those things were then suddenly raised where. I realized that we were asking adolescents sometimes to make food decisions that they didn't have the capacity to make yet. Because a lot of adults don't even know that stuff. 100%. So so moving that backwards was then, why do people not do what I tell them? So that's the classic, when you start with that dietetic thing. Why Mm. are you not just doing what I tell you? Yeah, I told you how to solve this problem. I told you, we fixed it. (laughs) And then you're not doing it. Why are you not doing it? And then realizing that this idea of food literacy is something that you can bring in from an earlier sort of age earlier format to then build into what skills do you need to make those food decisions and then that's where I ended up spending a lot more of my time around the youth like groups and just being able to really figure out the fact that it was around skills development a lot more about like a coaching model so Mm -hmm. how do you coach them to make better food decisions rather than again prescriptive telling somebody what to do um, again, like use of, uh, that's where I started figuring out the use of wording, like being consistent with wording, which words to use that are more appropriate. Um, trying to avoid any of the dietary like dogma that comes with like later that you now realize as an adult, you're like, oh, that's really not that ideal when it, things are good or bad or um, any of the like moralizing of food decisions as well, which unfortunately comes a lot into adult spaces. So trying to like backtrack on a lot of that stuff and just just, to, just describe what you mean by moralizing of food it's an interesting <laughs> concept a cheat day a cheat for day the concept yes. around no cheating now that's the best that's yeah. one of the best examples so yeah. if I have someone who says oh well you know six days out of seven I eat in this way and on the seventh day I have a cheat day and you have to ask them immediately so what are you cheating on yeah and when you cheat at school 
you are punished if you're caught, obviously. If you cheat in sport or if you cheat in any frame of your life, it is a negative, completely negative connotation and you are generally going to be punished. So if you have a cheat day, one, you're cheating on something that of course makes no sense in terms of you cheating on yourself and your dietary paradigm. And then also that at some point you must be punished. Yeah, you deserve punishment. You deserve punishment. You deserve restriction. You deserve like sort of... And so, I mean, before you know it, again, as I say, this is experiential psychology, not... um, taught psychology or qualified psychology but you start psychology yeah but you start (laughs) to realize that then of course if a person goes through those cycles that then before you know it if they have their cheat day then of course they approach the that's the monday fad i now go back into my diet on a monday with an extra level of almost like self shame disgust only these negative emotions that come with it and before you know it we do not actually have a very good relationship with our food Mm. or how do you move past that paradigm so what's Mm. plan b so a lot of time it's trying to make sure that that definitely happens in adults. So obviously you have to work in adult spaces with that as well. So how do you prevent that in adolescents? How do you make sure that they don't fall into those traps? And so what does that wording look like? What does that framework look like? And also the empowering ability to say that is not for you. So if you're an athlete specifically, because often we need our athletes to eat more, not less. How do you move into spaces that are not effectively defined by an anti-obesity model which i mean again it's basically just a huge push-pull all the time and obviously all the information that we see on the internet or online is very driven towards more an anti-obesity model with good reason but that is not appropriate for athletes so now how do we again get them to learn how to make decisions that are not governed by that model and also sorry to interrupt but people listening to this might say oh you know you're just swinging the pendulum away from Away, away from uh, what's the word like rigorous obsessive eating towards yeah. like liberal do whatever you want and it's all very PC and work and I've no doubt we'll get onto this in a moment but that's not what you're saying you're not saying that there should be no no consideration that some things are and okay I, I'm going to tee it up because I know what you're <laughs> going to say but some things are good and bad for athletes yes um, so, so, so we, to well, be clear I'm not, we're not we're not moving in a direction of liberal tolerance of every behavior we just have to figure out how to bring it to the middle in a way that is constructive without the risks associated and i guess if we think and maybe you're teeing it up for me as well is is that if we look at like what has happened in athlete spaces in the past Mm. so the idea that we have used body composition inappropriately we have vilified certain foods we have Mm taken things out of context is that that has created problems. So if me as a professional understands that if my acceptable risk is the fact that I want, so you, you've obviously got options. I can accept that maybe 20% of my athletes will have a negative relationship with food or with their bodies, or I can go for the fact that actually I have a zero tolerance to the idea that I'm going to contribute to that as a professional, which is quite difficult. Obviously zero tolerance is quite, it's not all on me, but the idea that I never want to create a system that at any point puts anybody at risk. Therefore, I have to almost be slightly kinder in the guidelines, but build the strategies for each of them that effectively the high risk individuals are not placed in places that I don't want them to be. I don't mm. know if that makes any sense. Yeah, mm. it, it does. And I mean, obviously now we're talking conceptually, we can yes. turn this into really practical examples. Yes. And so, so we're thinking here, for instance, and in the last few weeks or month, maybe we discussed British swimming has a policy that basically says no body composition in anyone under 18. In Colorado at the university, there was an investigation into the coach, which ended up 
effectively banning what they used to call regular well, what, what did they used to call it do you remember it was something Tuesdays or, or monthly yeah, just weight yeah. it was a monthly they basically just used to weigh them body yeah. fat composition yeah. and they used to starve themselves in advance of it and many athletes reported these body shaming practices Salazar with Mary Kane was another example so we've seen countless examples where I think good intentions misplaced mm. have created problems and we're trying to now figure out how to keep the tool without the problem yes right yes and, and so body composition again just in terms of its link to nutrition is is that if we know that at a point that body composition will be relevant it's also acknowledging that at under 15 under 16 type of age group level is that sometimes body composition is not the most relevant performance um, or development outcome mm. so you have time to take a longer like a longer like outlook on the idea that we can move towards that. So I'll use my like example. Yeah, let's go in, examples. I think so, that'll so, Like it. in terms of, of academy rugby, where I was working um, in the UK. So I'm dealing with everyone from about under 15 to under 20. Mm-hmm. And in terms of being able to introduce that over time. So obviously when it came to under 15s, they used to have weight and heights done, but I would then phrase that around growth monitoring. So are you still growing? Are you still making sure that you are actually, mm. in theory, getting usually getting heavier and getting taller? So are you moving in the right direction? Then we'd get to under 16 and sort of maybe it would have a bit more input from myself in terms of where do you think from a positional perspective what your range might look like in terms of where you might need to end up. Under 18, we'd start giving more input in terms of like maybe more regular monitoring of just body weight specifically. And then at under 20, I'd introduce skin folds. So if that skin folds being like sort of that assessment of, of the next phase of body composition, advantage being that I ran that whole process. So I had clear oversight of exactly what was happening at what point in time. But the idea was to introduce each aspect of like a monitoring tool but in the time appropriate manner that just meant that now they knew what it was for so at under 18 you're getting to the point where they do need to make decisions whether it's that they're playing in the right position whether they're growing appropriately i mean unfortunately if you're you know if you're not tall enough to be a lock in the in the men's rugby game you won't be a lock you're constrained so you might be playing a lock at under 18, but also recognize that you might end up having to move to loose forward. So that's kind of the mm. the decisions. And, you know, you've got talent, I mean, position transfers when you're taking a flank and making them a hooker and you've got sent, whatever, like you've got movement still within that under 18 category. And so you have to be able to use the idea that you are growing and developing in the context of the other outcomes. But then when you start introducing maybe skin folds in the under, so I guess it's under 19, under 20, now they start interpreting the idea of what that next phase looks like. But then that means that when they leave the under-20s and they go into a full men's environment, which of course actually they often tend to actually do before that because they start playing other types of rugby, but they actually have an exposure to that. It's not a fright. Mm. You don't suddenly get yelled at about any sort of body composition outcome, but also they have the insight to know that I've given the 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 view of when is this the most relevant and how to interpret the data that I'm giving you. Mm. And it is a time-intensive process. It's not something that can... And again, most environments, I'm sure, have the problem that they just don't have the resources to have a person to guide that. So give us give us a practical example of like what the risk is that you're trying to mitigate there. Is a, a youngster at 15, 16, and maybe the coach is saying, I need you bigger. Because if your, your success in this sport is going to be a function of your power, your mass, and your size, and I need you bigger. And then that kid goes away, and their response to that perceived instruction is 
diet nutritionally damaging because so i mean there's everything from i mean i've said i've heard it before when like an under 17 will call it a dirty bulk i don't know if anyone's come across that phrase it it hurts my heart but it basically just eat whatever you want as much as you want so that you can put on the mass that those that somebody's sort of given you the indication that you might need and as i say because it's it's all intricately led from like what a coach's feedback might be that you end up that they just eat poorly Mm. they make poor decisions and then ultimately also that there's a dysregulation of appetite so i'm eating when i'm not hungry i'm eating things that don't make any sense to like what i actually need Mm. there's no insight into how to do that in any other way because we don't actually understand food very well yet and then there's also this weirdness that then i'm just that the relationship with how we eat and what we're eating for just becomes completely like altered Mm. and i often find that if i'm dealing with adult rugby players specifically in rugby into that retirement phase is once you stop playing maybe semi-professionally or professionally it's Mm. completely like they have no idea how to regulate appetites there's no insight into what a normal day-to-day eating looks like there's no constructive ability to go back and say okay so now based on what i'm currently doing what is the best way for me to eat going forward Mm. because they never got taught how to do that or learned any decision-making capacity when they were younger Mm. so it is i mean again as I'm, i'm speaking in ideals here because again it's just really does depend on the idea that you can walk that that sort of professional sport journey with someone. So how do you rein that in now? You're, you're list- we've got people listening to this that are parents, coaches, strength and conditioning folk, and they do understand that you, you're not going to succeed in the sport going from 16 to 18 into adulthood unless you do get to, because this is reality, right? Like there are going to be no forwards at the Rugby World Cup upcoming who are not a certain size because otherwise you'd be blown backwards in every tackle. So how do you rein in that that potential mistake that gets made very young? I think it always just goes back to the fact that a a weight or a body composition is a really easy, it's actually quite an easy number to rely on. So if somebody, even if you're using like a bioelectrical impedance scale and someone's 35% body fat and you can give them hell about it and be like, ah, you should be 20 or under 20% body fat. Is it, um, it's a misuse of what should be directed like as a priority should start with what are you what are you doing on the pitch Mm. how does this relate to what are you doing actually in the performance arena so for uh say we're going to use a prop as an example because they're always vilified for body composition is that you know can you get up off the ground fast enough what is your how are you pushing in the scrum um Mm. what are your other performance outcomes that you're being challenged by the coach to actually achieve within the tactics and technical components of the game and feed that backwards because often from a problem solving perspective if you say to a prop you're getting off the ground too slow how do you think you can fix it or how do you think you can get better at it they'll be like well i need to be more explosive okay great Go see the S&C coach. What what else can we do? Well, maybe I need a better power to weight ratio. All of a sudden, that's not your fat. It's not like, oh, you're a lazy, you know, all of those negative connotations that come with that whole concept. It's like, okay, power to weight ratio. So what do we need to do about that? Mm. Oh, well, maybe I can try and, um, and again, in an ideal world, consult the dietitian to like see mm. how to change my eating practices or make better decisions to inform my power to weight ratio. Mm. But also because it comes always with that same... I think, again, the poor prop, I've, and as you can imagine, I've seen a few props have to go through this, but you're fat. Okay, cool. I'll just stop eating. So now you've got always this right. push-pull where you've been told you're fat, you're fat, blah, blah, blah. I hate that word, but that you can imagine. And then they stop eating or stop fueling appropriately, and then they crash and burn three weeks later because they've just not nourished their yeah. actual physical shape and form. And again, you know, a 120-kilogram prop, it, 
if you stop eating or, you know, the craziness where someone says, oh, they're going to just stick to 1600 calorie diets or something. And me having to explain that that's enough for, you know, a 70 kilogram human to go on a weight restriction or a calorie restrictive diet. Yeah. You're thinking, where did you get that? Mm. Like, oh, well, you know, they just panic because of the message that they're getting from elsewhere. So all of, all of what I try to do in adolescence is effectively to inform how to manage that better. So also protect against the weird coaching stuff that ever might come your way, but also then to inform that idea that these are the things that are maybe more important. So let's focus on those and translate backwards. So, so if we could distill that into like a principle, it would be begin with the performance requirement in mind. And if you manage performance, the body everything else that yeah. contributes to it will take care of itself. It should, yeah. yeah. And also that you're just de-emphasizing the idea that it's only body composition. And that's where, right. as you say, we talk about the context of the tools. So if, if you were weighing your swimmers once a month beforehand, and again, this might, it has a growth or a change relationship, also energy balance. There's a way of looking at, at weight monitoring over time in terms of energy balance. If you take that out completely, now the person is completely reliant on intrinsic internal factors that mm. they might not actually have learned yet. Yeah. So if, one of my other things that I tried to teach adolescents is what does your appetite look like? When is it useful for you? Like, when are you actually hungry? Lots of adolescents don't like eating in the morning. They don't like breakfast. They want to sleep. They don't want to go and wake up early so they can have breakfast before they go to school. But often they'll end up training in the morning or they'll have an extra training session sometime. And so it's it's moving past that say, okay, if you don't, if you're not hungry, rather than saying you have to eat before you go to the gym. What about these different strategies for enhancing that gym session in the morning or making sure that your recovery takes into account your breakfast and your recovery or you pack something extra for school. You ask the teacher if you can eat in class. Like there's a lot there where sometimes again, the, the system that we create doesn't always allow for the fact that if I say, cool, I need you to have another snack at half past nine. And the kid says, well, oh, my, my, math, my math teacher's yeah. not going to let me. Yeah. You're like, okay, well, I can write you a nice little letter if I need to, which is obviously not really what I want to do. Or you could, and again, part of your skill set, I now need to learn how to explain to that teacher that this is what my requirements look like. And I just need five minutes to eat my extra like sandwich in the corner. I promise I won't make a mess. I'm not, it doesn't undermine any of the work capacity within the mm. classroom. And you're not, uh, you, yes, sometimes there's this idea of special circumstances, but it's for a reason. There's a couple of, I mean, there's a couple of questions that spring to mind with me, particularly when it comes to rugby. And this is, a, again, maybe a very practical example. Visually, you can, there are two types of props that you get. You get props that are muscular and you get props that look fat. I know you hate the word, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> so in terms of body composition, one might have a, 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 a be more muscular with a lower body fat percentage. The other one might be more flabby looking with a you know higher body fat percentage. How do you manage what is deemed a healthy weight? Because there's a lot of theory you've spoken about here. But when you get somebody who is a prop, who their main goal is to push in the scrum and to create size in the in the in the game they they can they be healthy in doing that and 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 in other words can you look at a player who is 19 20s old and go body composition wise that person is not great therefore we need to change he can still play the game being a big strong guy 
but we need to change his body composition. In terms of health, though, Mike, because that, that's a, health, a really yeah. good point because the media headlines are often dominated by the health consequences of pushing it the other way. I want yeah. you to be lighter and smaller, and then you get the reds in, yeah. in men and women. And it applies to both but, sides. But yeah. now, now you actually you raised a really good point. There are sports, American football is another one, where they are bulking those kids up to 300 pounds at the age of 18, 19. And we know that that's yeah. maybe more unhealthy than it is on the other end, right? So, yeah, that's a good that's a good point. But this is why, I mean, hopefully everyone acknowledges that if we look elite elite sports specifically, whether amateur or professional, elite sport is not a healthy environment. No. So, so if I know that that's my precursor, like <laughs> I don't, you know, we always used to, I guess it's one of those, Things as a dietitian, my medical responsibility is to make sure that I am never harming or putting one of my athletes in harm's way, which is why we go back to the how do we talk to them, how do we measure body composition appropriately, because psychological harm is a thing. But if mm. we think about the physical harm in terms of putting on too much weight too quickly, or as I say, the dirty bulk idea where you're just putting on body fat instead of putting mm. on muscle mass, that that unfortunately just is. It, it often comes through the fact that we haven't laid down the right skills for determining how to do that appropriately and also made the system work in favor of that player. I think from a if from a professional perspective, if you want to use your example of the two different types of props, my first question would always be, are they technically and tactically good enough to play both of them at the same shape, like different shapes? Mm. And if the coach says yes then yes, if you're an under 20, and I think that long-term your career and your injury risk and all that type of stuff might be better if your body composition made you have a power-to-weight ratio that was more in favor of whatever it is that you're trying to do, then that's great. Then we work on that. But it's also the idea that I need to have six to 12 months to work on that because it's not a diet. Like you don't put a 19-year-old rugby player on a diet. You Mm. try to guide the idea that over the time point, by the time we get to next season, where are the key little things from a nutrition perspective that you can change consistently and inform your decisions for what you want long-term, how to get there, but in a way that has no psychological risk, no weird dietary weirdness, no misuse of the relationship with food, etc. And, you know, a lot of the time, actually, they really are such simple things. But see, there's a contradiction in a way because you're talking about having a good relationship with food, blah, blah, blah. But in the same breath, you're saying it's about performance at an elite level. So who cares what the relationship was with food when they just want to be, they just want to get to the point where they can maximize their ability as a player? I think that you are right. They work not always in the same direction. But again, if someone's facilitating that relationship, you can decide where your sort of like balance lies on that spectrum at certain points in time. So yes, if a player is waiting for a contract and they have three months to be and the coach has set the default, I will work alongside a player as much as humanly possible to get them to where they need to be to get that contract. But the difficulty then is, is that, again, I'm still and supervising and just, that. Just for example, and I'm, I'm mm. keep on going back to these props because they're a good example. <laughs> so player A, 17-year-old, Johnny comes to you and says, right, I, I, at school level, I was playing first team rugby. I made the provincial schools rugby team. I want to play first class in first rugby at university level, potentially play for my province down the line. The goal is that you want to make sure that he is going to be competitive from a physicality point of view down the line. How do you treat him? In other words, how do you stop him from saying, I'm just going to go into a whole course of 
what was that supplement they used to use a while back when they just used to bulk themselves up a lot? But well, there's loads of those. We'll get to loads. supplements, no <laughs> doubt. But, 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 there's, yeah, a lot, that's, that's, but there's a lot of that. That's one of the traps, right, in response Correct. to that instruction to get yeah, bigger is now I'm just going to over-rely on supplements. My creatine is what I was thinking yeah, about. And, and, right. and so and they also, just hit the creatine, they bulk up, yeah. bang. Why do, they need, why do they need you? <laughs> well, it's also that that's a high risk for any really poor decision-making, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, that's what I want to hear from you. So why is that high risk? So, I mean, you go back to the idea that the, and as I said, if you go back to the idea of the adolescent brain, is is that the the consequences of something that you're taking to get to place that you need to be aren't necessarily always thought through in terms of the full picture, which is if you go back to things like steroid usage, if you feel that pressure and that you think that that is the only way to get to where you want to be, then that puts you at high risk for the fact that that's mm-hmm. the case. Now, if you're managed really holistically by a team and unfortunately this is not everybody's option this definitely does not happen but if you have your strength and conditioning coach and your dietitian working together is is that you can put together a plan that allows for that player to get to a place but it's also the coach education that goes with that as well Mm. so at no point in time am i only ever talking to the athlete if a coach gives one of my athletes an unreasonable expectation so whether it's the amount of size that they need to put on in rugby whether it's losing mass in a like a different sport so like uh, like women's netball like i work in netball at the moment as well like all that type of stuff if you if the coach has given unreasonable expectation on that, then you need to go back to the coach and understand also how did they get there? Mm. And that also comes part of the process of working in those spaces is if the coach has decided, and this is maybe why the swimming, the, the British swimming, the uh, you know Australian Institute of Sports has done something similar, is that the coaches don't know how to translate that either. So you don't, they, they know that they need to see this thing but they don't know how else to say it other than translating it into like a body comp outcome or <laughs> a, you know, like if you've got a sprinter or let's say a female swimmer as an example, yeah. and all of a sudden they just notice that they are physiologically changing shape in adolescence and, they're going through puberty. Yeah. Yeah. and yeah. they go through puberty mm. and all of a sudden they are changing their, their shape and size. Instead of being able to think about the idea that it's the puberty and therefore how do we manage expectations, how do we create a holistic environment for somebody who has the potential but just might have a year or two where things don't quite go linearly better, mm-hmm. then instead they go, oh, you need to slim down. Without, without a, so they're very good at identifying the problem yes, just wrongly really, yes. and not providing a solution Absolutely. to it. And, and also not yeah. then thinking that it's not just, it's not just body composition and right. therefore it's not just food either. You've got your role yeah. of strength and conditioning. You've got the role of, of just growth in general. So, yeah. So they see us, they've received a signal. Their eyes yes. <laughs> have told them there's an issue. Yeah. They've, they've misattributed that issue or incompletely and then not provided a, a solution yeah. that actually solves it. And, and, then, and then the next mistake, which compounds that, is that instead of addressing the coach's knowledge, the authorities ban the coach from ever using a tool. Yeah. And so you just double down on the mistake. And, and, and the coaches don't also often have capacity to then maybe either learn something different right. about how to do it. So like the amount of times I've had a coach say to me, can you chat to that player? And I'm like, okay, what do you think the problem is? is they just don't look right. Cool. Okay. And what? That, that does happen. No, 100%. So, so then there's this evidence of saying, okay, so when you say look, what do you mean by that? Do you think that they've changed shape? Do you think that they're not performing? And often if you really dig deeper, so say like I, I worked a bit with some divers and there was often, there was like one female diver where she always got pinged on the side of this. She just didn't look the right way. 
As a, as a, this is a youngster now, yeah? No, so she's a, she's maybe uh, 21, 22. Okay. So she's already gone through this for the last like five mm. years, which okay. of course is what then consequently came up in conversation, is, is that because she just never quite looked the way they wanted her to look, she was always being told that she just wasn't mm. eating right or she just was too heavy. or she, And I mean, it caused, I think for her, huge issues with her relationship with food. Everything became low carb, what became restrictive. And although diving's not like an endurance, it's not it's not marathon running, but you still need to feel appropriately. And so all those mixed messages were always just based on the idea of what she looked like. But she was performing. I think there were some elements of that where she wasn't always performing. But again, it probably didn't come it almost, down it to... It almost doesn't matter though, right? Because yeah. if she's not performing, the, the way she looks becomes the reason in the coach's Absolutely. mind. And if she is performing... The coach is incentivized to make her better anyway, and then he's going to look at the way she looks as the easiest way to make her better. So it's almost it's almost like the, the coach can sidestep the performance and obsess about the measurement of body type or, or assessment of it. And if you go back to your prop example, if both of those, so I mean, I'm sure we've got examples from a South African rugby context, yeah. um, but if that prop is dominating in the scrum to such a point that they're unplayable by the opposition, no one cares what they look like. <laughs> but as soon as they are not performing... It is about what they look like. And that's the part where from a coaching perspective, you have to really, and, and as I say, I want to try work in the space where you're preventing some of that from happening in the first place. Mm. But if I have to deal with it at adults, the, the idea of trying to manage well, that coach's expectation is really important. That, that's where though that, that saying <laughs> form follows function, which is I know architects use all the time. It, it's true in the animal kingdom. <laughs> Your house have tall legs, yeah. tall, long necks, they're tall. Form follows function means that if you understand the function of the player or the <laughs> athlete, then the form should necessarily track that. The, the temptation, though, I guess, is to say the prop is dominating the scrum. Imagine how good he'd be if. Which, which then actually is a conversation with the prop. Right. It's not because the coach now needs to say that. So it's not up to the coach to then decide that they should still, that they'd be even better. Yeah. Because sometimes, and again, like in rugby specifically, again, your, your mass creates your velocity in certain spaces. So sometimes that mass is useful. Yeah, kinetic energy and exactly. contact and so, momentum forces that you can apply. But I also have a lot of, of athletes who at some point will say, I mean, I had a cricket player the other day who just said, I'm about two or three kilos overweight. <coughs> and of course, I mean, he's not overweight at all. But he feels better bowling when he is two to three kilos lighter. So yeah. he knows what his fighting, what I call it fighting weight, just because it makes sense in my brain. Mm. But it's like he knows what his best fighting weight looks like. But he knows that from experience now because he's an adult and because he's progressed through the phases. And he's probably never had to be called fat because he's a fast bowler and he's never probably been overweight at any point in time but he knows what his best shape is so with athletes as well it's also the idea that sometimes the coach but, makes a decision on behalf of the athlete when actually but, you just but, need to ask the athlete but adolescents almost by definition can't know what their best <laughs> exactly. weight is because their weight's changing 100%. weekly as they get as they grow so so if, if if they ever become obsessed like i'm at my best now i've got news for you pal you're never going to be at that weight again because you're only 15 so yeah. <laughs> you could either stop yourself getting heavier and stay at a 15 year old weight and that's not going to be good for you no and, and this would be particularly, I reckon everyone who's listening to this and is a cyclist and runner goes, I know my best weight yeah. and I know that I need to lose weight. I mean, I, I, Mike and I tell each other this all the time when we ride. If only I could be a little bit. Oh, well, I, I think I was but, even. But we're hardly elite athletes. No, and I think I even I've done a calculation for running with like, I'm like, oh, if you lose five kilos, you'd run this much faster. Right. Then I just realized that I'm just not prepared to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's our problem too. Oh, I, it's trade-offs. Yeah. What's, what's the approach though? Let's, if we shift from rugby where it's yeah. like, I need to be heavier now we talk swimming and running and cycling i need to be lighter 
the principle will still be the same is let's begin with the performance yeah. demand and whether you are because if I'm if I'm under undernourished and underfueling eventually performance is going to suffer so then form function will be impaired yeah there's and I think that that's why from a research perspective there isn't a lot of uh, robust data yet I think in the adolescent space rather than either the pre sort of like on the cusp of being adult mm. um whereas and so if I take maybe the Mary Kane story as an example what what was so interesting about hers is that it was an obsession with mass in terms of her running but I think it came with a lot of and then I tried to explain this to students at one point in time it came with bullying and um Almost psychological, yeah, like psychological warfare in terms of the idea that it was her fault. It was, it was bad. Like so, so I think that her 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 reds was different. So her relative energy deficiency was different as a physiological construct to the actual psychological abuse that she then went through. So obviously that compounded into a really negative outcome. Mm. So the thing is, we don't have a lot of insights into the reds or the energy restriction that doesn't necessarily come with psychological harm. Often, and I and I am completely open to the idea that you could have both. So I can have two athletes who are both under eating. One has anxiety around eating, anxiety around body composition, fear of gaining weight, and the other one can just be not tracking the fact that they've increased their training load and they didn't really understand that they needed to yeah. increase it. And I have had that before. With like, I once I had two belly dons at the same time, and they literally were that. One was unfortunately really on. They're a very high risk category, and I think I eventually referred her. And one just needed some instruction on how to make sure that her training load had gone up, and she didn't really realize it. Or in a way that her appetite didn't correspond, she didn't have an insight into how much more she needed based on increased dancing. So there is capacity for there to be both, but if we can try and make sure that the, there's less of the psychological side that goes with it, then obviously that's where I tend to be very protective over the idea that use if you're going to use a tool use it appropriately and also just make sure that you're managing why you're using it so if you start with a performance outcome say we use netball as an example it's position specific so your shooters and your centers are going to be very different um i'm sure everyone who was watching the world cup could see that there's very different outcomes for each position so requirements as in in like what i'm doing during the game absolutely one of one of us is running around covering a lot of distance and one one of us needs to jump and that's like yeah. and yeah. pluck a ball out of the air at six foot five. Mm. So there's there's different outcomes. So therefore, you must individualize the performance component to then feed into. Like, okay, so what do you think that you need to do around eating and training mm. to make that position performance outcomes what you need to do? And I think if you start with that, often then again you also move away from any of the weirdness that is you don't look right. Because it's not about looking right. It's about doing your job on whatever pitch, sport, court, whatever that you are in. And if you can do the job, then as I said, if you're performing, everyone just calms down a bit on what you look like mm. and just leaves that. And, so, and, then, and then you can take the time to develop into a space where you can do it over time and you've got the, the time and space to develop better eating decisions, better performance habits, and then get to, you know, get to an adult in one piece. Can, can you, one thing I remember that struck me among the many things when you spoke to the coaches at that Enduricad a week or so ago is you, you illustrated a conversation you might have with, say, a 15-year-old middle-distance athlete, maybe a cyclist, for example, as well, same thing, where they say, I don't want to eat more because I'm going to gain one or two kilograms. And you basically said what you would say to the athlete, so what? 
Yeah. Now, now, okay. There's there's a lot to unpack in that. It's not it's not a flippant so what get no. over yourself thing because you want to respect. And I would imagine with adolescents especially, they're looking to take ownership. They want autonomy. They want to be independent. They want to be adults basically yes. before they're ready to be adults. So how do you explore that that concept of a so what answer in response to that fear of an athlete who's scared to gain weight and underperform? So I think maybe to just preempt some of like that conversation is usually when I recognize that a person is under eating. So it's not just about the right. idea that they're going to eat more yeah, to gain context, weight. It's about yeah, the idea that yeah. they're actually under eating to begin with. Mm. And so the what I find really useful is the idea of, it, I think it's called basically establishing evidence for and against a theory. Um, so you go with the idea that if the athlete has, and again, this is why trust is so important, if they trust that I know what I'm doing, we have to go with the idea of saying, okay, so if I give you a little bit extra and you start off with one piece of toast with peanut butter on it, as an example, if if you, if you that, how about we try that? Would you be happy to try that each day you have one more piece of toast with peanut butter and then at the end of the week, we can look at the idea of whether or not that has made any impact mm. to your body mass? And usually an athlete has some sense of the idea that one piece of toast with peanut butter is not a large amount. I'm not asking for a huge deal. It's not usually completely outside of the bounds of possibility. They go, okay, that's fine. Then you establish that evidence over time should show that nothing bad happens. You don't put on mass. You haven't, nothing else has changed. And we've accepted the idea that we could be under eating to begin with, because that's usually also quite an important like agreement mm. between mm. dietitian and athlete. Then we say, okay, so the evidence shows that nothing bad happened, right? How about we add an apple to that, right? Then we do the same thing. And so it, it takes a long time, can take a very long time, but it's the establishment of the idea that the increase that has happened has not had the negative consequences that you thought it might. The increase in food intake. Yeah. So and the negative consequences, the first obvious one is, have I gained weight, yes or no? Yes. And that often doesn't even happen. But no. even if it did, the performance may still continue to improve and won't necessarily get worse. So, yeah, and also things so like look, tracking sleep, yeah. um, energy, mood levels, all that type of stuff is also good. I mean, you never it's never just about body mass. Yeah, so, but that's yeah. usually the part that causes the most fear. Right. So we need to try and unpack and undo the fear. Mm. And if you can show that the fear is unwarranted or is least diminished, then at least there's an agreement of the fact that the amount of energy that I need to function might be more. Yeah, because the scenario you've described there is we're going to add a piece of toast with peanut butter, then an apple and so on, and we're not going to gain weight necessarily. But if the athlete's genuinely underfueled, they probably will. In fact, one of the things you're trying to solve is body mass, right? Um, I think it depends. So you go back to the the, the the difficult situation with the middle distance runner, I actually probably, if they're an 18-year-old girl, I probably don't necessarily, like unless they are, are have lost weight, yeah. I probably don't necessarily want them to put on weight that isn't in line within a, a like a strength, like an S&C program. Yeah. So, so you have to be very careful because obviously a sudden increase in dietary intake would be, there, that increase in weight would probably be faster than corresponding strength outcomes if they were in the gym. Right. So it's also the, but it's also goes back to the same thing. It's like, if we're going to eat for more training, it's also unpacking the idea that an increase in body mass isn't bad. And that's often where you get the idea. Like I, I don't know if any of you've jumped on a scale recently, but it, in the notion of jumping on the scale, often there's a like an understanding of like, what am I going to feel like if what the, depending on what the number says. And so I, I will often ask athletes before you jump on the scale, even if you don't and actually sometimes don't just do the exercise. 
if you if it goes down how will you feel if it stays the same how will you feel and if it goes up how will you feel and it will very quickly establish like where some of that fear sits because because of course like say you've got somebody who recognizes they're under eating they're under fueling they need to eat more but if they but if i say to them cool how will you feel if it goes up on the scale and they'll be like i'm petrified Mm. there's a lot more work to do there And, and again they're not necessarily they don't have an eating disorder they don't have um they're not at risk of any super negative consequences just yet but they might need to figure out why that is so fearful so that they can move past it right but the, that fear is real. I mean, there's no, it's inescapable that to some extent, mm. like running and cycling, weight plays a significant yeah. role in performance. And as we've touched on briefly, whether this is all about performance or all about health, sometimes those yeah. are diametrically opposed. In the, in the case of a young athlete in running and, and, and fascinated about rates, so you're talking about the fact that, yes, you have to tell them that, for instance, eating healthy. I would suggest that eating healthy doesn't necessarily mean weight gain because sometimes bad eating habits can lead to long-term issues like we talked about reds, mm. we talked about those sort of things. Is, is how do you, do you communicate that by saying but eating more doesn't mean you're going to put on weight. You're actually going to be a better athlete and not necessarily put on weight because we know mm. that correct eating habits might actually lead you to eating more can actually make you lose weight yeah. as opposed to eating badly at the wrong times can make you lose weight at the same time. So no, you definitely go through that. I think mm. that the the <laughs> the concept of healthy again, unfortunately, is something where I try to move away from the idea of what yeah. healthy eating looks like in an adolescent. So the same as I said, you can't really have good and bad foods. Is because for a let's say there's an adolescent triathlete and they've got they're already on fifteen to twenty hours of training a week. For that athlete to grow and to fuel and to recover the whole thing, they might need to smash. 100 grams of jelly babies in their face three times a week. Mm. And for for the traditional adolescent of 17, 18 years of age, that's not appropriate. So you have to kind of go back to like, what is helpful? Yeah, what will so inform where mm. you need to go with this? And then destigmatizing certain things. Right. So, so like as a language lesson, if I say, Mike, you shouldn't eat that, that's bad for you. Yeah. Your, your approach would be don't say that, rather say. So just saying, does that align with what you want? So in terms of your goals, so for an athlete, that's usually quite an easy way of starting the conversation. And then do you think that's helpful? And it's so, very woke. Well, I mean, it's, it's but, but, but this <laughs> but is, I agree. It's but the this right is why I say it. that it's not about, and I'm not trying, again, I'm trying. <laughs> if I think that if I've seen the consequences of eating disorders in adolescent athletes, so like I manage some eating disorders already, if I can see the consequences of how, high-risk words or frameworks or coaches talking, etc., have aggravated a situation, it just becomes the fact that I just find it unacceptable the fact that I'm ever going to contribute to that. So if I can figure out how to teach coaches, S&C staff, uh, nutrition practitioners who might be like learning in the field of sport, if I can help provide that framework, um, it just means there might be one high-risk athlete who just ends up not going to that level or not getting to that point. They're always going to be high risk, mm. but 
they just might not progress to the point where I we think, then actually I think the, damage someone. I think the jelly baby example is a good one. So is Coke, I suppose. Yeah. If, like, if I'm if I'm doing 15 hours a week of training, there are going to be days in a week where Coca Cola is appropriate. Coca Cola is appropriate <laughs> and, and helpful. The red ambulance for nothing. So is yes. <laughs> and, and and if the ambulance didn't arrive, then it would yeah. be unhelpful. So we know, fact, we know that. In a, yeah, exactly. In <laughs> actual fact, not having it would be unhelpful. Absolutely. So, so the context is what determines, and that's that's where I. Because I can see how people might be listening to this like you there and saying that is woke. But but mm. it's quite clear that what's good and bad in one situation is not good or bad in the other. So but, actually the word isn't very – the word itself, good and bad, isn't helpful. No. And helpful, unhelpful actually gives it the ability to respect context. Yes. And like so mm. whether it's helpful, unhelpful, appropriate, inappropriate, um, yeah. in line with my goals, not in line with my goals. Like whatever wording suits people, I find helpful, unhelpful quite useful because they tend to – as you say, completely context-driven. Mm. And and that's hopefully when I work specifically in adolescence is that the main part of my questioning and my line of thinking often is to get them to develop how do you make that decision in that context about what is helpful. Mm. Weirdly, I will just say that um, dental issues in athletes are higher than non-athletes yes. because they have lots of because that, yeah. um, carbohydrate in refined forms is helpful but we also need to remind them to brush their teeth <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's an important fact every action has a yes. consequence so and I'd a third always, and a fourth and a fifth yeah, so always have to remind them cool but also brush your teeth please <laughs> and we forget I mean I keep on reminding myself as you're talking about this we're talking about young athletes that are potentially developing into top class elite and better athletes and lifelong um, athletes and lifelong athletes yeah, yeah to some extent mm. so it's it's different like when you talk about if you tell a teenager not to do something they will do that thing you don't want them to do yes. whereas that reframing almost softens the blow a little bit but actually almost throws them into a into a state of personal guilt uh, but, if they're not but, but, yeah and, but and the alternative they, empowers them yeah so, so the, it's yeah. all about autonomy yeah. so it's mm. about the idea of guiding mm. so i will not tell you what to do as well, generally in most most of any people I work with, I try not to tell people what to do. But the the idea of guiding that autonomy is, do you think, and, and I mean, I, I had this when I, again, at the rugby academy I was working at, where I almost didn't shoot myself in the foot, but if we want to go back to your supplement question. So we got right. to the point where I had, um, I had oversight over the under 18s and the under 20s, but I didn't, weirdly, granted this was not my preference i didn't have complete oversight over the men's team mm. in terms of the supplementation and so what would happen though is because i was so focused on this idea of what's helpful for food how are you going to create this environment where your food drives what the adaptations that you want how do you want to fuel for your session what's our recovery snack look like all these nice things around food is is that when i finally did get oversight of the next level of supplementation and some of those academy players moved into the men's team, they turned around and just went, well, we don't really need any supplements, do we? Mm. And of course, so now I actually had oversight. I could actually do the other part of my job. And I was like, oh, that's that's really good. But also now I don't have anything to do around that space because I've trained you so well to make that decision that in actual fact, you've recognized that you don't really need it. Mm. Yeah. So it was like this trophy for me, but also at the same time, I was like, oh, but I just got the power to do that. So just on that then... What are the circumstances in which the athlete might correctly decide that they do need supplements? Because I know people will be wondering that as you talk about them. I mean, I think if we're quite fair, again, high training volumes, large outputs means that sometimes you can't get enough in in food if you don't have enough time. So yeah. if we think first of all from a, like a micronutrient perspective, 
uh, females generally with high training volumes might need some form of iron support at some mm. point, but we do need to check that. So those micronutrients, like that type of stuff is as needs. Mm. You usually have to figure out what the constraints are. If we can't get it in, we take the supplement. Right. But I think that the clinical supplements then are very different from, like you mentioned, the creatine or the whey protein or the mass gainers in rugby. And so my philosophy on trying to help guide that decision is to ask that they show me first that they can do it in food. Right. So they must illustrate their capacity and their efficiency in food. And once they can show that they can do that, is that then if they need a convenience option, we can add some. So it's like an, you frame it as, as like an earned, um, yeah. I don't want to say privileged, but it's, it's yeah, kind of like an earned uh, opportunity to. Yeah, it's the video game where you get enough stars and then I'm like, cool. So your prize is that if you want to, to use a whey protein in your recovery smoothie that you were already making, then like, let's throw it in there. Well, but, why would you, I mean, why would you avoid supplements? I mean, they seem to be a, in the right context they're, they're think, a helpful way of yeah they they're not always helpful so but maybe i'll put the other context on the when they're not helpful is one obviously we've got our anti-doping risk which yeah. of course in south africa is relatively high in terms of how much how many options we can get in this country i mean globally sorry to interrupt yeah. you globally if you look at every basically every doping case that comes out these days is blamed on a supplement so and, and we know that there are as many yeah. there are many risks as there are dopers it yeah. seems to me anyway if you believe them we, we know that that's not necessarily always true you just blame supplements yes. because it's better than blaming <laughs> actual doping yeah. because the one means you're what's it by by negligence not by by intent. intent yeah. Right. yeah but if so if, if we go with the broad spectrum of you know 25 to 30 percent of supplements might be contaminated depending on the type of supplement that risk then is incurred by the athlete blah blah so the, that's always explained to them in terms of the anti-doping stuff and even in the uk um where i work with the mo- mostly at the moment the the risk is still present so you want to be able to again from that adolescent autonomy perspective you don't want them to be making a decision that allows for them to be at risk when they actually don't really understand their risk yet. Um, then add on the idea that if I've got athletes that have started early on supplements, especially like a whey protein or a creatine or something like that, is that they f- they haven't learned how to do it in food. So when they're now 25 years of age, they don't actually know how to change something. So say they run out of their whey protein, they can't get another supplement in time. All of a sudden, they're just not having recovery shakes or they are... And they just they just have weird decision-making paradigms because now they don't understand what to do because they've never actually figured out how to do it in food. So that's my key sort of phrase is to try and say, let's figure out how to do this properly first. And the convenience option of whey protein will come in as you, as you need it. That doesn't mean that I haven't said to athletes who are under 18 that they can use supplements, but it then it goes back to the fact that then I'm there to supervise exactly how it's used. It's like with starting creatine, you know, um, I think there's actually there's more and more evidence that creatine actually is really useful for anything from some of the cognitive function in older adults to mm. maybe looking at brain health in concussion sports, although that stuff is a bit, it's a bit up in the air at the moment, but it might mm. be there. But like maintaining muscle mass in female athletes because we don't eat a lot of animal-based protein you look at these things where creatine could actually be really useful, but it's like the idea that it's, I need to figure out that it is useful rather than the idea that somebody feels compelled to take it because everyone else in the change room is taking it. Mm-hmm. And that's where right. that differentiation, but again, a 16 year old boy is more compelled to follow everyone else because everyone else is doing it. So then it's trying saying, okay, well, what do you think it's going to do? And then they have no idea because they don't actually know what creatine does yet. Has there ever been an attempt to study whether supplement use is associated with 
either disordered eating, eating disorders, or nutritional issues later in life in supplement users more than in non-users? I think that there might be some stuff in non-athletes yeah. around, but but that's I don't actually know if that evidence like I'd have to go but maybe double check that. I know that there is there's obviously the basic stuff around supplements being a gateway to yeah antibiotic I've seen, I've seen that like yeah yeah I've mm. seen those ones but but for instance, and you would you would find it very difficult I think in any ethical study design to link one to the other yeah. in a causative way but yeah. it it might be possible to say that. In a population of people with um, disordered eating, for instance, or, or eating disorders, or even if, you, if, even if there was a way to describe a level below that, and it was yeah. not serious stuff, but, but problems that you would potentially oh, need to fix. an unhealthy relationship with food. Yeah, yeah, let's call it that, unhealthy, if that was quantifiable yeah. somehow. Those individuals would be significantly more likely to be supplement users. And maybe it's because of the unhealthy relationship that they go supplements or maybe it's because of supplements that they develop the unhealthy you'd never know which direction it's going but does it exist i guess is what i was i'd probably say that so if we look at things that are high risk maybe in an athlete space things like there's definitely evidence around tracking your intake mm. um i think also that the obsession with protein probably so if, whether that comes with supplement use that probably does then have an aggravated push towards disordered eating so the idea that you you know, um, I think they've done it, some studies in bodybuilding, whether it's natural bodybuilding or not natural body, where just that obsession with protein actually means that they end up underfueling completely in terms of very low fat, low carb intakes, but very high protein, yeah. which probably cause, and again, because it's disordered based on the fundamental perception that that is the appropriate thing. And if they don't eat like that, that causes them stress. Yeah. And then is that, that's is that like the, the, is that, that's orthorexia. Is that sort of related where you... Kind of. So orthorexia, I guess it just depends um, for the, the idea, the obsession of eating healthily. Mm. It, that definition of healthy probably would be different from one person to the next, but it's the, it always comes with the, the part that's the obsession. Yeah. And if I don't do this, the anxiety and the consequences in terms of the fear that comes with not being able to do it. So if, if you were in the bodybuilding space, I guess the fear would be that if I don't achieve four grams per kilogram protein every day that I will suddenly lose all my muscle mass and all mm. the gains that I've created and that causes an irrational and fundamental fear mm. and therefore also if you only know that you only can have this many calories then obviously the rest is then not really just divided up very well in terms of what foods you're eating and that might then come very much in line that if you're going to be having four grams per kilogram protein per day you probably will need a supplement because Eating yeah, that amount of chicken just becomes not feasible yeah. in terms of chewing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so give us a, I mean, when you look at, and it's a very difficult question because obviously there are different sports requiring different energy levels. If you look at adolescent behavior or you have a parent who comes in or we look at sports in general, let's say you're a parent of a of a top class sportsman. What, what do you, have you got an overarching sort of bit of advice that you would suggest them so my johnny is a 16 year old prop or and my little girl is a 15 year old runner gymnast or something yeah. what, what are what are the principles that parents need to kind of be aware of and that even youngsters of that age also need to be aware of in terms of how they should be eating what they should be aware of so probably my first thing with parents is always to start with how much are they actually involved in the food process so if you're thinking that transition from about under 15, under 16 to under 18, my main goals with most of those athletes is to make it that they can take care of themselves. So the idea that if you leave the house at 18 to go to a university, play sport, wherever you're going to go, 
is that you actually need to know what you're doing in the kitchen. So, and I think that in that learning process around the skills you develop is that the parents will immediately see where there's something lacking and also where there might need to be more input. So things like, I mean, can you go to the shops? So in the online of, in the world of online shopping, this is a little bit more hard, a little bit more challenging, but can you go to the shop with a shopping list that is matched to your training snacks for the week? So especially under 15, under 16, I usually say that the adolescent should be responsible for their snacks, not the meals in the household, but just their snacks. So can you make a snack list based on how many training sessions you've got? Can you decide what you'd like to have? And can you then put that on a list that either goes with you and your caregiver to the shop, or you can take it to the shop with your your pocket money, if that's the right terminology. And so if you're already starting in that phrase is that immediately that skill will start reflecting in, do you eat enough? Do you have enough variety? Do you understand what you actually need before and after a training session? Um, is there a concept of understanding that for each training session, you need an extra set of snacks to increase the actual amount that you're having? And then usually the meals then kind of take care of themselves. So for most adult in that, that sort of age group, it's breakfast, lunch, and supper, and snacks for each training session. And then again, for, for adolescent boys who are- I would say snacks for each training session. Pre and, and post, post. yeah. Okay. And then sometimes during, depending on what, what it is, but that most- and pre being fueling and post being recovery. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And remember Graham Close when we interviewed him in our other foray into this, he said fuel for the work at hand was his sort of principle. Yeah. And so I like fuel that. for the work required. So yeah. what, what's the work now that I'm about to do in this session, whether it's a rugby training session in the gym or whether it's a, a track session for a runner or whatever, a cycle, a long ride on a cyclist? What's the fuel? How do I provided before I train, during the session and afterwards. Yeah. And those are all in the snack category. Yeah. yeah. And so what yeah. you have, and as I say, that one action or series of actions. So what's my training look like this week? What is the work required? What do I need to recover mm. from? Therefore, mm. making a snack shopping list, going to the shops, packing it in your bag and mm. including it. That entire spectrum of behaviors will show you exactly where somebody doesn't understand what they're doing or needs extra help. Mm. So if all of a sudden they're skipping pre- Okay, what's the problem? Well, I don't have enough time between school and training. Okay, so what do you think is the solution to that, considering that we acknowledge that you might need that helpful snack to make sure that your training session is a good quality? Well, I can either um, have it during, so you change the snack to make it during. So you move from having raised peanuts and raisins to making it um, fruit diluted fruit juice. So you're moving into the space where you're modifying the snack to then take into account the constraints of what's going mm. on, or you are making it three dried peaches that they can shovel in their face in the last period of class bef while the teacher's not looking, because if that's the context. Oh, before the training session. Before the training yeah, session, yeah. because they know that mm. they can then do that. Mm. And there's an alarm on their phone or something. Well, I don't know if you allowed phones in class, but there's some form of consciousness around what time is the appropriate time for me to eat that before I can go outside. And so that's the type. But but as I say, that's the type of behaviors that then executes exactly where there's an if there's any issues. And if a parent can get their, their kid effectively to execute that series. In other words, you, to have breakfast, to feel before and after a training session and to eat the but not, meals. See, not necessarily to have breakfast because that, remember you said even yeah. right at the beginning, sometimes the adolescents don't want to have the breakfast, no. but mm. then you, you accommodate that. Um, you modify. 
Okay. Whatever it's called, like nutritional tick or desire, yeah. and you modify it. As long as you are matching something against something else, yeah. those something's being work required to intake. Yeah, and I think also we just have to remember with adolescence that, you know, one thing that Graham would have said is feel the work required. But in adults, you're not growing anymore. Right. So, so. we do also have to take into account the idea that your your brain is physiologically still growing. It still has yeah. a cost in terms yeah. of going to school um, and thinking. And then the idea that you still then need to accommodate then just normal physiological function and your training. And and so that's why you want to lay, and I, I think of it as layering, you're getting them to acknowledge that there's a layering effect. If I'm not training, then I still have breakfast, lunch, and supper every day. Mm. And again, breakfast might not be way before you go to school, but there's a morning meal. And then as soon as you add a training session, you add snacks. If you add two training sessions, you add two sets of snacks. If you And so that's why I think that that helps guide the idea that there's a framework, but then we go and we go back to the helpful, unhelpful side of things. For some people, breakfast might be a glass of milk. That might be helpful. Well, that, that was because, my question. Yeah. You might say that teenagers yeah, don't yeah. want to do that, but if they want There's to be performing, be there. they have to. Yes. they have to. They mm. have to modify and get that right, just as all adults do. Because Absolutely. you have to change the habits to get optimal because, performance. Because because it's unhelpful not to, and that's how it's framed, right? And it's helpful to do it, and unhelpful and, and so to that's omit what, it. And that's why it's not a rule yeah. that you have to do something. Yeah. It's like, well, if you'd like to achieve this outcome, mm. do you think that this is a helpful habit to have? And you focus specifically on the habit of something so that's why like if i'm under 15 under 16 i often will say to people i don't care what the snack is you can be having a packet of knickknacks for all i care because you're learning to have the snack Mm. then when we get to like a slightly better level of of training required or there's more emphasis on that actual session and the quality of the session then i'm like okay so do we think that the knickknacks is the most helpful thing we could have (laughs) now they've already learned i'm getting it yeah yeah. you can tell i've been practicing but you start to work with the idea that no human no thinks that um from a health perspective or a food quality perspective thinks that coca-cola is better than water so yes it's helpful in certain circumstances but from a health perspective i think we can kind of go with the idea that a water has a certain level of attributes that are generally quite nourishing in terms of hydration. And Coca-Cola is a completely different kettle of fish. But if you put them on a healthy spectrum, water is going to have a slightly higher quality. Mm-hmm. So everybody knows that. Like I, I mean, when I say everybody, okay, I take that with a pinch of salt. But generally, we are very good at discerning what's the difference between an apple and a packet of knickknacks. <laughs> and for those of you that don't, don't live in South, for yeah. those of you who don't live in South Africa, knickknacks are a chip. Yes, yeah, sorry. Or a, what do you call it in the states? <laughs> crisps. Uh, crisps. Yeah. And they used to be they're kind I don't of know if a crisp are, but they were. They used to come in a Bright color yellow. that you wouldn't find in nature, <laughs> <laughs> like like artificial, you know, and, cheesy and, and, yellow, yeah. And they yeah, and, and they were yellow. so full of tartrazine that they used to like knot your tongue up because yeah. they would just layer you with this artificial chemical. And slash and or make children slightly hyperactive. <laughs> if that was me when yeah. I was little, so so obviously as as an example that if if a person is having a packet of, uh, so a packet of crisps before a training session. If you then work with them over time, so they've been having their snacks, they've established the habit. Now you shift into, okay, what do you think a better quality for that might look like? Okay, well, three times a week, actually, I'm going to have a banana and a peanut butter sandwich. And once a week, I'm still going to have a packet of knickknacks because they're my favorite. Now, there's nothing in there that is uh, judgmental. There's no, as I said, the word moralizing. There's no issue with the packet of knickknacks. Because they still mm. get out of it what they need, but they've shifted into a better mm. quality of thinking, and it never came at a cost of their relationship with food. 
And if that was my ideal, that was how I would try and stage it because that's where I want them to go. It sounds like it's just a constant negotiation. Yeah. Well, that's the problem is, is yeah. that you need the practitioner to be the negotiator. Yeah. So so practically now, parents, <laughs> coaches listening to this are saying, this is great. And, and they can take that first step of asking their child, their athlete that they coach to to, to take ownership of their snack plan yes. around the meal. Parents or coaches could do this. But now to to improve that snack plan and to optimize it is going to be where you need some specialist expertise. And that's where they would go to a dietitian. But it could do a lot worse than just creating awareness. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also just that, and I say this, and I said this to the coaches mm. the other day, reflect or asking the right question doesn't, you don't need to be a dietitian to do that. So if you are, if one, if you know your athletes, if your athlete has trust in that relationship, it is that if you try to have some philosophy on your wording and your vocabulary and how you're asking the question, you can very easily influence. I mean, a coach has way more leverage than I do at mm. any point in time. Mm. If the coach says, what do you think is the most helpful option at that point? You don't need to know the answer. You don't need to tell them, I think you should be having this. They just have yeah, to say, explore. you explore, you mm. find out, you problem solve your way through that. So now the next time you go to the shop, your snack list doesn't just say five packet of knickknacks and five stereo stumpies. It's sorry, chocolate <laughs> milk. Chocolate milk check, mm. yes. Sorry. Um, it, says, <laughs> it says three apples, a box of raisins and um, hot cross bun. And it has a chocolate milk, a yogurt with some fruit. And so all of a sudden they're exploring their food landscape in a way that doesn't, again, doesn't come at a cost of, oh, now I'm bad. Yeah. Because that fear of failure is effectively like, I mean, again, it might not be from a parental perspective, but the fear of failure in that relationship is still very real. Mm. Like an adolescent doesn't want to be told that they're bad. Mm. I mean, no human does, to be perfectly honest. Like we, we, we don't respond well to guilt and shame. I mean, is quite successful for short periods of time, but it's not going to develop a really long, healthy relationship with food. So so we don't want to, almost as a public service announcement, I would encourage (laughs) coaches and parents to do this process at the very least. Give the person some responsibility, give them a purpose around snacks and ownership of that. And just ask good questions yeah. in the right way, because you don't want to you don't want to throw up barriers. When yeah. and I listen to this and say, oh, but I don't have the resources, the time, yeah, I don't money have a dietitian to, <laughs> to go to a dietitian." Obviously, I would want to encourage someone to go there because you can accelerate this process and do it in a much more um, evidence based and optimal way. But yeah. don't let not having it stop you from taking the first step. Is the point? Yes, and I think also that. If you phrase it as a problem-solving approach, yeah. if you phrase it as a learning environment, you will you will usually get the most out of your athletes. And probably maybe just a little asterisk on there is it usually if you are going to consult a professional is to try and get a dietitian who specializes in sport. In sport, yeah. Because unfortunately, it's, it is a different part of dietetics. Mm. And if you're in a different country and they have nutritionists, again, a nutritionist who specializes in sport. Mm-hmm. Right. One other question I wanted to ask, and I know, and then maybe we work towards wrapping up, is a very special population of adolescents would be young women and girls to young women. Yes. Because it's at that age that menstrual function begins, and that creates both performance, body, psychological, and nutritional challenges. Do you have any specific advice around that group? So I think the in, the whole, I guess the way we speak about that at the moment has changed. So the same way that we're now speaking about body composition in a slightly different way, especially in adolescence, we're now looking at periods slightly differently. So problem, my, my first suggestion always is that just for any female athletes is that when they do start their period, they just start tracking it. 
Right. So tracking in a, just with one of the apps, like mm. there's there's a multitude of different applications you can use on a, on a phone. And it, the idea is to try and get to know your body. Mm. And the hardest part is then saying to an athlete when they're 23, 24, cool, what does your cycle look like? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Like, why do you not yeah. know what your characteristics mm. of your personal cycle look like? And I think that we're finding in the research in adult females is that there's just a lot of variation. And so we want to be able to bring that back to say, if you start getting to know your body early on, whether it's symptoms, whether it's um, changes in body mass, whether it's changes in cravings or feelings of what you want to eat at certain points in time, all of that is useful, but only if you actually can acknowledge what it is and when it occurs. And you can't do that unless you're actually paying attention. Mm. So that's definitely my first thing. And I think outside of any of the other things, the biggest thing is just being able to talk about it. A lot of male coaches, male SNCs, they don't find it a very comfortable conversation. I think a lot of older women sometimes don't find it a comfortable conversation. And so it just leads back to, it is a characteristic of the female athlete. Therefore, we must be able to talk about it and we must be able to illustrate exactly where it sits. So for me, from a dietetic perspective, my main role around periods is the idea that if you have one and then it disappears, we have a problem. And we need to figure out why it disappeared, especially if it's around energy availability and especially if it's around some sort of change in mm. your training, your energy balance. Right. So that might be my main role, which means I often do end up talking about it. But everything from even just access to contraceptive, which contraceptive is the best for a female athlete, like all of those conversations just seem not to happen in the in the early phases. They just seem to always happen much later after there's just multitudes of horror stories. Mm. So definitely looking at you know what do you think that's going to look like track it get to know your own body and then make sure that w if something changes you try and consult somebody as quickly as possible mm. you touched on something and this is my final question if you're an if you're a parent and even if you're a young athlete what, what are the flags that you need to keep an eye out for when you look at young athletes in other words what do you say oh we need to, there's an intervention needed here so around food, I'd probably say, you know, and this is why, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you are monitoring growth and you are jumping on the scale every three to six months, you know, look for changes that are not expected. Mm. So suddenly, and again, it's always in relation. So if you're looking at it from an energy balance perspective, we know that if you are not eating enough, in theory, you will lose mass. If you are eating too much, you should be putting on mass disproportionate to your strength and conditioning or your physical development. So... I don't encourage my adolescent athletes to weigh often, but I do think that if they think something's up, then you can check. So that would be one red flag. I think definitely anything around, if you're a parent or an adolescent athlete and you notice that you were eating regularly, so I was eating three meals a day and I had my snacks, all of a sudden I'm skipping breakfast, I'm not that hungry at lunchtime, I don't really feel like eating at dinner when I get home, then something's changed and we need to look at that. Um, Again, that might be more of a parent observation than an adolescent athlete observation. So that would definitely be so change in meal frequency or change in eating habits. Change in appetite for me also is quite a big one. So, you know, again, if you're a young male, usually you're hungry all the time. If that changes, you probably need to have a little wonder as to what that is. But it could be anything from stress with exams to um, just not training as much to before you get sick or coming back from getting sick. You know, so, so it's not like it's dire consequences, just like pay attention. Yeah. Um, what else could I think on that one? Like underperformance. Yes, um, sudden changes in performance. Mm. Um, 
And and for for the I guess both boys and girls is that at any point in time if their growth spurts have come with changes in shape and form. So for boys if they suddenly grow, like I had a, a young rugby player once who grew probably a foot in about a year, mm. and he was he was anemic by the end of the year because he just grew so fast that, the demand that his, body, the his supply. body could not yeah. accommodate the amount of blood he needed. Yeah. So he actually ended up getting injured, which was a grace on the idea that he could then take time to re, re-establish his iron levels. But it was I, I never would have expected that in a young male rugby player. <laughs> And then you look at like for females, if you suddenly start changing shape in terms of whether it's growing breasts or changing adipose, like distribution, growing hips, as they might say, like whether that change might not be something you can you can do anything about, but how we mediate that and how we explain and holistically evaluate then what does our performance plan look like, that I think is really important. I suppose co- coaches have an opportunity where in their environment they're in, they're monitoring a lot of things often already. They're certainly monitoring performance. Yeah. If the athlete is racing or competing, there's an evaluation opportunity quite regularly. But there are interim ones in training sessions. There are possibilities to ask athletes about anxiety, like mood states and so on. And obviously... In adolescence, those are very non-specific. There's many things that can cause an adolescent to have mood swings and changes. But as long as you're aware at least you have your eyes open and you can potentially see it like what you what you want to then encourage is awareness as much as possible and and it's the same with almost any physiological variable if it was consistent and it changed we probably need to have a look at it yeah but you can only know that it's changed if you were paying attention in the first place so that's the the period example is a clear one if you have a period once a month ish and all of a sudden it disappears it's changed if you gastrointestinal function so like the some of the stuff i've i've done some research on if you are generally a once a day person going to the bathroom and all of a sudden you're a once a week person that's changed we probably need to have a look at that yeah Mm, mm. Yeah. And and so that yeah, so just paying attention and if something feels a bit like it's changed and you need to think why is it changed and do we need to worry about it? Yeah, that's good advice. I can just see as a parent that's that's one of the things and I think parents that I've known of you know, young school boys and girls that have performed well at sport, their main concern is they always want to know how do I know yeah. that they're getting what they need mm-hmm. and those those sort of tips are very important for them to do it. And hopefully the the, the kids themselves are more aware than maybe the normal population in terms of whether they are performing because if they're yeah. not getting the nutrition they can't perform as well as they should do You'd at the sport so they've got every reason to be aware but the problem yeah. is they've also got incentives that blind them right yeah. and yeah. also just that yeah. sometimes like again team sport versus individual yeah. sometimes you can't be found out for a while like as in your performance hasn't changed so dramatically that you can pick up the seconds on the clock it's just the idea that you're just not as plateauing yeah, yeah. and so it's the it is that and which is why as i say you go back to the behaviors that you try to instill is that if you can get those right then it's less likely that you'll run into a problem later we'll leave it at that sir chanda thanks very much for your time it's a pleasure thank you thank you for listening to the science of sport podcast follow us on twitter at sports ipod and on instagram at science of sport podcast Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 